Yeah, Vincent Canby, get bent. Get bent. Retire. Is Vincent Canby still alive? No. Oh, I wasn't sure if he was like 90 and just no not riding. <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> retire. He is definitely retired. Yeah, dead in the year 2000. Born in Chicago. I didn't know that. I didn't either. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? Then crown them. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and as always, I'm here with... Ryan Saunders. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts picks a theme for the week, and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme, and we get together and we have it out. And that's why we're here today. It is episode 54. It was my turn to pick the topic, and I've been, I've been burning the candle at uh, both ends recently and uh, having some late nights. And uh, so with a little help from, from Ryan, I uh, came up with this week's topic, which is Up All Night. And... It occurred to me in in picking this uh, topic that it really is one of my favorite kind of structural devices in film, you know? Uh, So many films go from dusk till dawn and have that nice little contained unity, right? That that classical unity of time and space and action. And and I really like movies that do that, very simply. So this was a, a very interesting pairing, to say the least, to see how space uh, is treated. Um, so why don't we get to it and uh, lay the films on the table? Ryan, uh, you had the earlier film, so why don't you... Go first. Tell us what you brought. Yeah, so I was doing a little bit of a deep dive again, trying to find something I had I had never seen before, never heard of before, and because there's a lot of favorites in this genre for me. Thinking of things like Miracle Mile or After Hours, there, there's a ton of films that have been made that take place over a single night. One of the reasons is that, you know, odd things happen at night when people are night owls. You know, who knows what sort of surprises await around every corner. But another practical reason, I think, why a lot of movies like this exist, and one of the reasons I think my movie exists, is that it's just practically inexpensive and it's easier, right? Especially if you have a limited budget to shoot everything at night. You don't have to worry too much about the time of day and the way that light's constantly changing. It's for a smaller productions, shooting a film that takes place entirely in darkness gives you a little bit more control if you have a little bit less resources. So the film that, that I found is a film from 1980 called Simone Barbès or Virtue, directed by the French filmmaker Marie-Claude Trilhou. And 
The film starts around 10.30 in the evening and goes all the way through the night until the streetlights finally turn off at dawn. And the film itself follows the titular character, Simone Barbès, who is an usher at a porno movie theater in Paris. And the film is essentially broken into three distinct chunks. The first chunk is Simone hanging out with her friend, a fellow usher at the porno theater, and collecting tickets, interacting with all the different patrons that are coming and going, uh, coming in more <laughs> more ways than one. <laughs> and then uh, because of that, having to tend to other issues, let's say, that are happening in the theater, just like the regular upkeep of the, of the space. And they meet a variety of characters. They get a, you get an interesting sense of the, the clientele. The night continues on, and Simone goes to a lesbian nightclub of sorts, a very Lynchian space where there's punk music, bizarre performances, and just general, you know, late-night vibes, essentially. And she's hanging out and waiting to reconnect with, with her partner. And then the final chunk of the film is... Her on her way home, getting closer and closer to dawn, as a man offers to take her for a ride, and she instead takes the wheel and drives herself home with him in the car with her. And these three individual sequences of the film sort of create a portrait of the type of people and the types of emotions that are felt when you're up all night. So I thought it would be a, you know, a perfect match for the topic. And I, I, I did a little bit of research and discovered that the film was a part of this collective, a post new wave collective called Diagonal. And it was like a group of filmmakers that primarily addressed working class concerns and were responding to their own life before that they had become artists essentially you know Marie did work at a porno movie theater she was an usher at one point so a lot of these things were taken from people that she had encountered in real life and experienced herself and this is the the kind of independent cinema I really do enjoy it's very relaxed it's pretty chill there's not a ton of incident but it does give you a really strong sense of space in particular here we have three spaces that are given a great deal of emotional weight to them it's a film i hadn't heard of before and it is sort of you know kind of fallen through the cracks of time and has recently been restored and you know not to be a greg turkington type here but i think one of the reasons might be i mean apart from the fact that it's a woman filmmaker and traditionally that their films have sort of been submerged in the history of cinema it also just has like i think kind of like a bad title simone barbes or virtue i think they missed an opportunity there and could have maybe given it something a little more jazzy because i think this film is broadly appealing, especially, you know, for cinephile sickos like us that watch things like Variety and enjoy portraits of porno theaters and the oddballs that are up all night. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about it and hopefully shed some some extra light on it. So that's Simone Barbes, or Virtue. Thank you, Ryan. And you know, Claude Chabrol said that the secret to Eric Romare's success was that the titles of his films sounded like pornos. So I do think they missed uh, an opportunity because Chabrol basically says, yeah, if people didn't think they were pornos, they wouldn't have gone to see them. So it's really a way to get... uh, Get a good crowd going, as we see, I think, in your film when the, when the crowd comes in, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when my movie starts, we see the sign, uh, the marquee for this porno theater, and the film they're playing is, Take Me Quick, I'm Wet. 
And honestly, that's what they should have called this movie. And I think it would have been just a, just as an appropriate title and a lot more people would have watched it. So, you know, Absolutely. but who am I to say? <laughs> Thank you. Andy, uh, why don't you tell us about your film? Well, I lately, you know, I've been pretty stressed, a lot going on. And I find often when I'm in those modes, you know, that that sort of headspace, I, I, I think I tend to retreat into uh, guilty pleasure viewing experiences. I, I really like to... To Andy Land? Yeah. <laughs> we need an Andy Land theme. Yeah. <laughs> I like to, to wallow in, in vulgar tourism. So I had the virtue of, of picking after Ryan, and when I saw... His film, and when I read up on it a bit and and kind of had a sense for what that experience was going to be like, I decided, you know, I wanted to do our listeners uh, a solid, you know. I, I think a lot of our listeners really appreciate some of our, our very cursed pairings. And so I tried to lean hard into that and find a film, in my view, that was uh, the complete opposite you know, but I just sort of, I looked at this thing. I'd seen it come up once or twice before. It was always in the back of my mind somewhere, and I'd never seen it. But I just, just knew this would be perfect for this, especially when I discovered that the events of the film take place over the course of a single night, a single night in Beverly Hills. The film I chose is. 1991's The Taking of Beverly Hills by the vulgar tourist Sidney J. Fury. Uh, this film opens uh, in Beverly Hills. Uh, we get a, a, an, an interesting sort of prologue, if you will, that, that uh, informs the viewership uh, about this particular space, this particular place, this very, very, very famous place in the world, a place unlike any other. And after this this little Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous introduction, we go to a, a fundraiser that's being held in the middle of Rodeo Drive, seemingly, for the homeless. All these rich bastards are, are trying to do their part to help out. All the haves are, are trying to do a little for the have-nots. Uh, Everyone seems to be very happy with themselves, all these rich people that we're introduced to, patting themselves on the back. And as everyone goes home, uh, feeling very altruistic, suddenly there's an accident in Beverly Hills, a chemical spill, a big, big tanker truck spills uh, a bunch of toxic chemicals uh, all over the place. And we get an emergency lockdown initiated as the EPA show up and an army of, of police officers flood the streets and begin evacuating the citizens of Beverly Hills from their home. However, this is merely a ruse. It's a cover for what is perhaps the most daring heist uh, you can imagine, <laughs> which is to say, this is all a cover for uh, a group of individuals to 
take Beverly Hills and steal everything they can get their hands on after the citizens have been evacuated and the real cops have been uh, forcibly uh, locked up inside the police station, leaving all the homes and shops of this very, very, very rich city, I guess, (laughs) city within a city, up for grabs. However, these criminals didn't count on one thing. In their frantic evacuation, they overlooked one resident of Beverly Hills, the quarterback of the Los Angeles football team, Boomer Hayes. And it's going to be up to Boomer Hayes as the only man with a buddy, but we'll get into that, (laughs) to single-handedly, or I guess with his buddy, stop these criminals from stealing all these defenseless rich people blind. Man, I, I honestly, you know, when I looked into the film, I, 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 I had a feeling that Ryan had brought up a few weeks back, you know, when, when I, I, I forget the particular film, refresh my memory, where you were like, have I gone too far in my, uh, my obscure international cinema deep diving? And with this one, I honestly, the more I looked into it, was like, man, have I gone too far with this? This, this could potentially be... Uh, a very, very bad movie. But I have to say, uh, after watching it, oh my God, was it a thrill ride. I am not kidding. And we'll get into particularly when I did this. I am not exaggerating when I say that there was a part in this movie where I almost stood up alone in my apartment and fucking cheered out loud because this thing has some of the most bonkers, 12-year-old brain-style action sequences you could possibly imagine. It is a a shitty, die-hard knockoff made by a very, very, very sharp mind who's able to take what could be a very, very, very lackluster uh, experience and elevate it to, honestly, at times, uh, cartoonish, dumb action bliss for me. It is. It is got some some amazing moments. So that's the film that I brought to the table, the taking of Beverly Hills. Thank you, Andy. It occurs to me too, that, you know, one of the advantages logistically speaking with shooting at night, of course, as all filmmakers know is that businesses are closed and that's great, right? Because that saves a whole lot of money. And I think both films very obviously benefit Uh, from that, or maybe not benefit from that, but trade in that. I mean, I know that in in Simone, they were shooting in a real theater, so they had to shoot when it was closed for a couple hours. You know, those places are barely closed. A porno theater, right? Uh, And so, you know, before it opened and after it it closed, they would shoot when they could, or they would shoot, of course, when there were no patrons. Uh, On the flip side, you have Sidney J. Fury just... Rodeo Drive all to himself, baby. You know, like he's got right. the the streets locked down. He's got Beverly Hills locked down. He's running the show. No one's bothering him. They can do whatever they want. You know, uh, they can fucking trash the place, <laughs> and they can trash they the place. Do. Yeah, and and I mean, I guess that's the other like, you know, if if we can connect these films, I do think that I think both directors are conveying 
uh, and, and relating to the audience a space that they're intimately familiar with, right? In the case mm-hmm. of Simone, it's like literally shot in a porno theater that Trelu worked at, right? And obviously Fury, longtime veteran of Hollywood, although he is Canadian, uh, I'm sure he was very intimately uh, aware of Beverly Hills and probably a resident, I would imagine. I mean, he does have a story uh, credit on this film, as in it was like his idea, right? Oh, yeah. uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that that I connected to in, in the film is that kind of like w- like wish fulfillment aspect of the, the treatment of the space in the movie, which is to say that like uh, he just blows up Beverly Hills and then he does it again and again and again for like an hour straight. Um, and that, you know, obviously I would imagine for him was a very cathartic experience, a very personal experience, you know, um, just as, yeah, in Simone, I think, you know, dealing with the customers of the of the porno theater and, and going to that nightclub, obviously we're also relating these very intensely personal uh, feelings, you know, so. And I don't know, I guess like at the end of the day, I came away thinking that like Beverly taking of Beverly Hills is is part of what I think of as like the the fountain of Zabriskie point, you know, like whenever you see like something nice or bourgeois exploded and like the whole cinematic lineage of blowing up like really nice things, you know, mm-hmm. and I think obviously that's, you know, one of the, the, the surface level uh, pleasures in uh, Beverly Hills. Definitely. I mean, yeah, as you pointed out, the story credit, you know, we see uh, Sidney J. Fury's name in there and and it's it is true. I mean, this was a project that that he conceived and as a, a Hollywood veteran and a, a guy that that sort of knew uh, how to butter his bread, he is a guy who sort of built a career out of doing genre films, you know, uh, he had a period where he really was a hired gun. Uh, he had projects that, that were conceived by him, but, but he has said, uh, you know, in his biography that he never made an impersonal film, that every film he worked for, whether it was, you know, just a a hired gun project or, or something a little bit more, you know, that, that he designed, they were, there were things within them that he really wanted to play with and explore. And I think you've nailed it on the head here, Marsh. And it's part of what made it such a, a thrilling experience for me is just this, this idea of the way that the film really revels in, uh, sort of satirizing the rich, satirizing Beverly Hills as a place, satirizing football players uh, and and satirizing action films uh, to an extent. I mean, this reaches such over-the-top levels, like, as the film progresses that I think, you know, Sidney J. Fury's, like, constantly going, okay, if you didn't get it yet, here. You know, if you didn't get it yet, here, right? This isn't uh, naturalism. This isn't realism. This is going to be a lot of fun. And yes, we are going to blow up this fucking place. When you see a, a, a squad car on flames smash through a, a department store named Fred, oh, you know, it's going to R.I.P. You're going you're gonna to have a great time. Yeah, it's Callaway. They're alive and they're loose. Go, go, 
It doesn't surprise me that Sidney J. Fury found it to be a, a personal project, and I'm sure it was a very cathartic project, because the one thing I was thinking of while watching it and thinking about Up All Night and the production concerns of shooting something late at night like this was the film production itself felt like a siege on Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. That while they are depicting a siege in the film, I'm sure this production itself felt like they were taking siege uh, over Beverly Hills and you know doing with it what they would. And yeah, I think that that energy gives it a little bit extra edge in terms of it being just sort of like a diehard exploitation type movie, you know, um, in terms of its like heist and structure and design. But I do agree that there is something similar happening in Simone because I also wondered while watching a film that was depicting a late night porno theater, if a lot of the clientele that was going to be coming in, that the film would just be openly mocking them. Not that I necessarily went into this thing with doubts, but it is something that, you know, it's it's an easy thing to do if you're going to depict the late night men that are inhabiting a porno theater. It's It's very easy to just openly make fun of them and turn them into cartoons. But because of her personal connection to the project and to that space and bringing to the film all of these people that she had encountered in real life. So many of the figures that show up in this film are people she met and experienced while she was working in these spaces. So even the, you know, the gnarliest ones are still treated with compassion. I mean, they still make fun of them, though. Yeah, they. I do think they're openly making fun of them, but it is not something that feels disingenuous you know it it, there's a truth there and an honesty in its portrayal of these people so it never feels like empty mocking it it still feels like a very humanistic portrayal of sickos well yeah and i think (laughs) you know to to that point like very very specifically uh simone and and her partner at the theater are the only characters that like really they have names in the credits everyone is just an archetype like, you know, mm. uh, so I think that they are like these very distinct types too. again, hearkening back to her real life experience and like classifying all these different types of people she uh, encounters. Right. These kind of like the timeless patrons of the porno theater. Yeah. yeah, there's this guy and there's that guy and there's the Belgian director who's worried about the projection, <laughs> you know, um, there's all these different types. A- another thing, you know, if we want to think about these films as like up all night you know kind of movies obviously the the use of time uh presents a a big separation between the two whereas obviously the directors are connecting to these spaces uh and hence why they're like yeah we could just shoot a whole damn movie in one night here you know or whatever uh the use of time is is i mean dramatically different i guess that's sort of obvious right uh simone uses you know Le Temps More, right? The the dead time of the French art cinema to just hang out and look <laughs> yeah. and feel. And uh, on the flip side, Beverly Hills has, I mean, 
20 moments of like clock watching in the movie where guys are like, we have 20 hours. No, we have eight hours. We have six hours. There's constantly being deadlines set. There's even a deadline between, you know, Boomer and his love interest, Laura, uh, the daughter of the uh, rich insurance guy in Beverly Hills. Uh, They even are like, oh, we have eight hours to go on this date or whatever. Everything is so like regimented and deadline driven and time oriented Uh, And then in Simone, it's like, time, what is time in the middle of the night, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. I would say with the one distinction being that the middle section of the film that takes place at the nightclub, Simone does experience a bit of restlessness because she is waiting for her girlfriend and she's tired of hanging around this nightclub every night and waiting until the shift is going to end. That seems like it's something that's up to her girlfriend, whether like when they're going to exit and how rowdy of a night it's going to be. And I do think that, you know, both films have a little bit of that restlessness, but in terms of the actual function of time and them being up all night, you're correct. That dead air of the the French art cinema does lead to the protagonist progressively growing a bit more tired and fatigued as the film goes on. And (laughs) that is not something that's at play in the taking of Beverly Hills. Boomer, the quarterback, uh, is someone who just refuses to show any semblance of fatigue at any point at all. Yeah. Well, in part because, uh, you know, there's a really great moment when, when Boomer realizes, all right, you know, I gotta fight my way out of here. I've gotta, I've gotta, you know, bust out of Beverly Hills if I'm gonna get anything done. These people are gonna kill me. Uh, you know, he's a football player who had gone through a game earlier in that day, and and as he points out to his would be date, he's pretty banged up. He shoots himself up full of cortisone before he begins his uh, his uh, his drive downfield, as he would call it, you know. And I think there's the great line where he says, you know, I am not loading myself up with cortisone, <sighs> so I can just sit around and wait here to get killed. Yeah, right. Hey, better to get killed out on the street. Hey. I am a master at moving downfield, and they don't know I'm in the game. Like, so, in part, I think he's juicing. He's got performance-enhancing yeah. drugs, so that's certainly helping him out he's there. He's bigger than life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I want to go to this point that you two have been discussing in terms of time, because I, I think I, I might have actually seen it a little bit maybe similar but different to you, because I thought a huge connection for me with both of these films is is their, the central concern of the main characters on a certain level. I read both of these films as people who were trying to get laid in a desperate race against time, a race against time, you know? And, and I, I, I see it in both, right? Because in, uh, in Simone, you know, it's, it, it, we experience that race against time in the way that, that most people would experience it. It's a lot of waiting around. And yet the understanding that, that, there is a window here to to get laid, you know, for anybody that's gone out to bars at night and and is trying to hook up. You realize like, man, there will come a point when it is too late for me to score tonight. Uh, and, and Simone isn't the only one facing that desperate uh, that desperate race against time throughout the film. And I think that's what makes the final section so incredibly moving. You know, right. it's, it's when we have two characters who are suddenly there and it's like, this is it. This is our last chance. Uh, we both have struck out with everybody else. Are we or won't we? You know, like how how desperate are we? And and 
And yeah, in in uh, the taking of Beverly Hills, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a the, you know, it starts with Boomer trying to get laid. You know, that's how it all begins. He's just sitting there. He he got her to come home with him. He's chilling in that bubble He's bath, a big old hot tub. Yeah, he is moisturized in his lane, you know, feeling good. And then suddenly these fucking assholes show up, grab the girl, skirt her away to some evac zone and start wrecking up the place. And and really like that's I feel for him the most frustrating part of all this, you know, is that he had a sure thing. And this has fucked it all up, you know? So, yeah, in The Taking of Beverly Hills, I mean, it is almost, there's like an almost attempt at kind of doing it in real time because when the heist begins, we see their clock, 70 minutes. We've got 70 minutes before the National Guard show up, and that begins like their, their you know, their crazy, you know, well-organized, I should say, heist yeah. in, in Beverly Hills. And a good heist always has a time clock, we know that. Oh, yeah. Somewhat well-organized. I feel like they could have hired some better actors to play some of the key figures uh, in their big scheme. They have a guy who is like a fake EPA agent that gives the like least convincing EPA agent director man performance you could possibly imagine. Oh, my God. That, that <laughs> scene. Like, that guy's like my favorite dude in the whole movie because that's like where so much of the comedy comes in that, that Sidney J. Fury was playing with. Mm-hmm. The fucking scene where he's like... He doesn't want to do it, you know, and he's like trying to talk to the guy like, I don't know how to play an EPA guy. And he's like, you know, just act confident or whatever. And when the police chief like sits him down and is trying to be like, what the heck's going on here with the EPA, you know, and how he just basically like fumbles his way through it. Listen, I'm, I'm thinking maybe I should get a couple of helicopters in here and take a look at what's going on. What do you think? Uh, no, no, I don't think. No, you're right. You're right. That's stupid. Yeah, I, mean, I could mean, spread this cloud and kill half the city. Yeah. What are you guys doing now? Uh, what do you think? Why, well, I, I suppose uh, you're measuring the number of cubic meters of gas being released into the atmosphere, right? Yes. Yeah, sure. That's, that's, you, you have to do that. What else are you doing? Well, uh, basically, um, uh, we're doing, you know, the next step, which, uh, uh, Right, right. Measuring a time frame for the dissipation of the, uh, of the cloud into the atmosphere? Yes. So how long do you figure that'll take? Well, um, it, it would probably take the usual the, the usual amount of time, which... Uh, um, What's that, about uh, 24 hours? Yeah, 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 about, uh, about, about a day, yeah. Because yeah, i got to give these people some answers, you know. I just can't have them wandering around here with a bunch of natives. Yeah, I understand. Uh, listen, I want to thank you for your information. Um, Tom Healy. Yes. By the way... How did you people get here so fast? Oh, well, well that's that's no big mystery. I mean, we were, uh, it, uh, we were, you know. You're in the neighborhood, right? Yeah. <laughs> I should know that. Okay, thanks for your help. Okay. Like, that scene's incredible. Like, the, the comedy in that moment, that's the joke, is that he's an idiot. You no, know? I, I know it is, but I also had a hard time reading that scene because of the performance from the police chief. I think the EPA dude's performance was quite clear, but I was lost as to whether the police chief definitely knew this guy was a fraud and was leading him through as evidence he didn't that's the thing i think that then there's there's like a disconnect there because then the epa guy is going way too hard in his ignorance i don't know to me it was i i did not buy it i think that the, the gag of the scene is funny but it, it didn't register for me the sydney g fury wants us to know 
everyone in this movie is ridiculous. Like every person involved here yeah. is incompetent, uh, arrogant, clueless, in over their head, you know, or, or just a fucking rich asshole. And I think that's why I enjoyed it so much, you know, because the police chief is a putz. The mayor of Beverly Hills is a putz. Everybody's a goddamn putz in this movie. I mean, the way that the rich are portrayed uh, throughout it, you know, as they're being evacuated and we see their maids coming behind them with trays full of champagne as they all go off to this this hotel to be sequestered for the night. And that amazing scene when the chief arrives and he's walking through the hotel and it's like, you just got all these rich people like shooting craps in the hotel, like smoking huge ass cigars. That was their like like, exterminating angel moment, you know, or they'd been like sequestered too long and they were, yeah, all the vices were coming out, you know? Yeah. And look, I mean, to, I guess, you know, Ryan, to your point, Sidney J. Fury in looking back on the movie, has said, I should have gone further. Like, I should have gotten, I should have made it crazier. I think the specific phrase he used was, it should have been more Mad Hatter. Like, uh, because yeah. I think he's striking that that balance, you know, where he's he is trying to make a satire, but he's also trying to masqueraded as a uh, a diehard knockoff. I think you guys are bearing the lead because I don't want to talk about any of that. I want to talk about the uh, the awful slash amazing performance given by Lee Ving from the band Fear. Ryan, you don't know who Fear is. You're too young, but uh, I've seen Fear. <laughs> Stop it. I've seen I've seen yeah. Fear live. So th- again, I think this is you know Bill. One of the things that that was cracking me up is simply the fact that yes, in the uh, in the heist that's going on, the coup slash heist that's going on, that's disguised as a toxic spill, uh, it is being carried out in the in the film by a bunch of ex-police who now work uh, as like security, right, in in private security. And the joke being that they have everyone's security codes, they, you know, they run the whole goddamn town. What if, you know, everyone who ran your security revolted? That's what's happening here. And these guys are masquerading as cops, they're masquerading as EPA, and sort of like the one of the main guys in charge is, is played by by leaving uh, from fear. So I think there is, again, the, the idea of like leaving conducting a, a military assault on Beverly Hills that uh, for me you know warms my heart you know yeah that was inherently <laughs> funny I, I he was my favorite figure in the film and I I think I agree with Sidney J Fury I think that if everyone else was registering at that level he would have had something that maybe I would have found to be a bit more successful in that sense. Cause every time leaving was on screen, I was laughing. I, 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 fe- I felt the energy. I saw what he was going for. And I do, you know, I, I resent that comment a little bit about me not knowing fear because <laughs> it's you, 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 you check the gaunt, you check the gauntlet records. I referenced fear in the platform episode <laughs> when we talked about the band and platform pulling fear type stunts. <laughs> Apologies, but yes, yes, no. I, but yeah, I did. I did particularly love the beginning when we're introduced to leaving, and he's like running this party, and he is just belittling all of the homeless people that have like made their way past the gate or whatever. However, they had sanctioned off their big party from the denizens of Beverly Hills, and it's just yeah, 
grotesque and despicable. And it, he also is responsible for, I think, the funniest moment in the whole film when the mayor demands that he make his way through the police barricade so he can enter into Beverly Hills and, you know, take stock of what's going on here. And when leaving sees him pull up, he just walks to the car and he shoots the mayor in the forehead. <laughs> taking my turn at the trough, pal. Look, there's... There's a lot to me. Uh, there's a lot of edge, like buried within all the goofiness of this, especially about class, power, authority, uh, the police. You know, there's there, there's so much in there from the beginning. I mean, and in in some cases, it's in offhand comments. Uh, even in that intro, uh, one of the cops, played by Max Headroom himself, Matt Frewer, explains like, "Hey, you know." We have our own police force here, and yet we can't even afford to live in this uh, in this place. You know, like the, these people are all, you know, on a different plane, and we're sworn to protect them. Even the police chief, there's like a joke where the police chief, everyone's like, "Where the fuck have you been?" He's like, "You know, I live in Pasadena." They, they, none of these these people who who protect all these rich assholes and their shit are able to to even like exist in the same space with them. And so the fact that this has been masterminded by a bunch of disgruntled ex-cops who are, yeah, finally going to get theirs is like a, a an interesting element. Even though they're, they're ex-cops and they're criminals, you know, they look like cops. They're wearing cop uniforms they were cops. They're they're driving around in squad cars. And so like when Boomer unleashes his destruction, again, for me, there's this other really kind of interesting layer, which is almost like a very satisfying part of my brain that just loves seeing so many squad cars just going up in flames and specifically like getting hit with like Molotov cocktails. I mean, think about when this movie came out. This is 1991. You have the LA riots, uh, not too far away from all of this. And so, you know, I see so many different things at play here that, that maybe on a certain level, it just gets kind of, jumbled up at times but but i think it's super fun to to see those things and to play with those things and as you pointed out yeah have this this uh this like punk goblin who's kind of like masterminding the whole thing on a certain level it is funny thinking about that both films i guess are dealing with satire to variety of degrees where in this you know mocking the police officers in simone there are many sequences that are mocking the aesthetes of, you know, the porn industry or even just the filmmakers themselves and the way people respond to porn cinema. There are there are many moments um, in particular. We, we March briefly mentioned it earlier. There's at one point a filmmaker who shows up and says, you know, they ask for his ticket. And he mentions, I'm the director of this film. They're like, well, you still got to go to the booth, get your ticket. And he throws a hissy fit and he goes inside to the theater to watch some of the film and he eventually comes back out and he just loses his mind at the state of the projection. And there's another like amazing man who comes out and is just 
so reflective about the porn industry and he talks about how he's seen every film that has been played there throughout the week and what's being lost in contemporary porn cinema and the the emotions not registering as true he thinks about particular starlets and where they'll be going from this point on their future successes i think my favorite moment of the lobby sequence uh you know one that really i think speaks to both films in in two different you know in different ways but uh, someone's like, I don't remember the context, context exactly, but someone's like complaining to them about the film. Uh, and Simone says, what are you looking for? Adventure, color, movement, frenzied action? You know, we're not showing Gone with the Wind here, you know? <laughs> and I thought about that line watching Beverly Hills, just going again, like, yeah, this is, we're not watching Gone with the Wind here, right? This is what it is. And and similarly, porn movies, like, yeah, what are you complaining about? Like, it's got everything. Color, movement, action. I mean, why do you go to the cinema? <laughs> it is funny how many things people find to complain while they're at the porno theater, which I thought was, like, amusing and thinking about her working there and all the complaints she probably had to receive from different patrons you know, at one point a man comes out and he's really frustrated because the film he was watching had queer sex in it. And he said, you know, I didn't come here to watch people buggering like I want my money back. You know, this is this false advertising or whatever. And, they, and even they, they, they hold him accountable for that. Don't you know what you're buying a ticket for? Yeah, like, There's another movie right here through this other door. Yeah. Like, what the fuck is your problem? <laughs> like, you went in there, you know, like. Yeah, I think that spirit, it does also, like, unite both films. Again, Sidney J. Fury is a guy that spent a, a long career dealing with that, uh, dealing with this idea that you can you can bust your ass, you know, you can make whatever you, you, you think is going to be good at the end of the day, and then someone's going to complain about it. And, and in his case, it, it has to deal more with executives. It has to deal more with, with studio heads, uh, less than the 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 rank and file of the audience but but i still think that sense of frustration and a playful frustration that that both films express to us uh so i think it's i think they're they're very like so far removed from one another but i found a very similar spirit like guiding both of these these viewing experiences for me that that you have Two directors in control, at least in the case of Sidney J. Fury, for the production. Because it should be pointed out that this film, like a film we talked about last week, at the end of it all, was somewhat taken away from him in post-production. He had an editor that he had worked with on several films, and then they brought in a, a different editor to, to sort of mess around with certain things. So I wonder, to, to a certain extent, Ryan... Are some of the more comedic moments jumbled in that as this thing gets tried to, you know, as somebody perhaps tries to pare it down to make it more like Die Hard and less like some sort of goofy satirical romp? Yeah, I felt like it, I was lost at times with the depiction of Boomer and especially his relationship with Laura because... Typically throughout the film, Boomer is portrayed as somewhat silly, but like with a solid heart, you know, and I think that his performance and his character usually registers throughout. But then there are other moments 
like his relationship with Laura, <laughs> where I was wondering what on earth was happening there. I is like, is this a fault of the direction? Is this just like an odd pairing of performers, like a meathead with another person who's sort of operating on autopilot? Was this something that got lost in the editing? But I got to say, the chemistry between the two of them, um, I, I was not feeling the heat. I, I was more, you know, invigorated and aroused hearing the, the Frenchmen in the background of Simone just going, way, way, way. Yeah. But, I, you know, I did love Boomer taking his bubble bath. Oh, I have a question. So, like, there is there is this amazing moment where, you know, he takes Laura home after the charity event and... Uh, at a certain point she enters into his bathroom and it's got like these trophies in the background and he's just sitting in the hot tub just like we had Burt Young in the hot tub uh, the other week yeah. on the gauntlet <laughs> uh, and here we've got Ken Wall you know the wise guy sitting in the tub and there's all these candles lit this like mood lighting production design and I was just cracking up thinking like when did he light all those? That works, yeah, works. We're supposed to believe the quarterback of LA's football team just lit 200 candles in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know, you know, but Boomer, he really valued that relationship. And it, it, honestly, the amount of like fervor he puts into uh, trying to maintain and keep that relationship up does suggest that he may have lit those candles. I mean, at one point in the film, he makes mention, I've never had an adult relationship. Yeah. So, honestly, the kind of person who would say something like that out loud it may have lit 200 candles. So I'm going to cast my vote that Boomer did yeah. light the I candles. I mean, I certainly think, again, he's very athletic, he's very driven, he's very gifted. He could have done it, and he was really working hard to get her. So I, I see how now, in retrospect, that, that could have been diegetic. That could be real, yeah. And you know, there's something else I love about that moment. There's just so many like, weird pleasures in this film that I, that I really appreciated, even even if they don't make a lot of sense, because there's a lot in this movie that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in that moment, like what I, I also really liked about that is, is the way in which the sort of like sexual object uh, is kind of reversed for us in the sense that like she's outside the tub, you know, she's now, you know, she certainly looks sexy, but she put on one of his jerseys and she's just kind of like hanging out outside that. And it's, it's Ken Wall covered in those suds that we're, we're looking at there. He's the one that's sort of like a little mermaid floating around in that bubble bath as a sort of like sexual prize for her. And I wonder to an extent, is that also this idea that she is an educated, intelligent, powerful woman? And to what extent is she just going to be using Boomer for a, a, a one night stand, a little bit of sex? He might be in his own kind of childlike way thinking, boy, what a I'm going to, you know, get with this girl and this is going to be great. And I've never had an adult relationship. But, you know, maybe there's also this sort of weird role reversal also taking place as he's just kind of floating in those suds uh, with his mullet just like soaked in that hot tub water just glistening for us there yeah and he gets left in the tub she gets snatched while he's tubbing you know and and I do yeah I mean I think you someone already mentioned a, a, a reference to champagne earlier but this is a film that has I think like a dozen champagne toasts in it at various points which is very fun 
me. Just like people oh, yeah. constantly be like, ah, oh, yes, more champagne. Like it's always very present, uh, I think, in an interesting way. But yeah, he's just he's just left their tubbin. And that reminds me, we do have to address, you know, Andy, uh, you know, described it beautifully, the opening of the of Beverly Hill, taking of Beverly Hills, this lifestyle of the rich and famous sort of montage. However, distinguished, uh, though, because of its... Uh, extended running time what is going on with that shit it's like five minutes long and the narration is only just a small part of it and you're just like looking at helicopter shots for five minutes it really seems like they stretched out the film to meet some like tv like window or something i mean beverly hills california the perfect marriage of beauty and money especially money there's $10 billion tucked away in the banks here. It felt like its own isolated short film. I mean, even when yeah. the credits start rolling, one of the first things you see is opening and end title sequence designed by some guy named Dan or something like that. You know, so yeah. he even gets a credit for producing something that felt so separate from the rest of the film and something that does run for quite a while. And there's a reason behind that that was all part of uh what i was addressing earlier in in the sort of post-production was like tack conflict on. yeah that was not sydney j fury's opening that that narration was all added after the fact after the film was was somewhat taken out of his hands so makes sense yeah i mean who knows what bits were Removed and then they're like, shit, now we're under 90. Uh, what can we do? Like, well, just how about a big goal opening <laughs> sequence where we just uh, look at a bunch of shit from yeah. Beverly Hills? We have to address the know? audience who doesn't know what Beverly Hills is. You know? Yeah, because I think I think Sidney J. Fury, he felt we all fucking know what Beverly Hills is. We get it. It's only a few years before even that we'd had a, a foray very specifically into similar territory with a film like Beverly Hills Cop, right? So, again, idiot producers at the end of it all, for whatever reason, who are just like, maybe they won't get it unless we really kind of hammer it out. Let's throw some statistics at them <laughs> about the money. I think the opening in the in the homeless fundraiser is perfect at establishing... Yeah, it's right there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, it communicates all the same stuff. Yeah, you know, because they like there's even little touches where, you know, they have seated at all the, the tables. Like, every table has its, like, token homeless person sitting at a table. I think that opening where everyone is like talking shit at each other, as you mentioned, like leaving just despises this entire fucking crowd. You have Matt Frewer as the cop who is, who is, uh, you know, dealing with a shopkeeper who's just trying to shoo homeless people away from the front of the store. I mean, everybody hates each other. Everybody's backstabbing one another. It all gets laid out because we didn't mention this as well, but the owner of the football team who is really kind of masterminded this whole thing is of course, played by none other than Robert fucking Davi. Bond alert. Bond alert, yeah, I was going to say. Fresh off, <laughs> fresh off his turn as a, as a Bond villain. Yeah, he felt like he was very much in the mode of his, his Bond villain performance. But yeah, there's so much like sniping going on and everybody's a piece of shit that, you know, in that opening, you, that's all you needed really to establish it. Yeah, you don't need that. You don't need the extended prologue. Although now, to me, it's a, a very memorable opening for its uh, for its dissonance. You know, um, I want to 
bring up too, uh, uh, Anna, I guess, you know, we were talking about Lee Ving. So like a, a connection to the film is a, a certain uh, punk rock element, you know, yeah. uh, in Simone. The second sequence of the film, the secretive uh, lesbian nightclub. Uh, there's a wonderful band, you know, that's playing on stage throughout much of this sequence. But they're kind of from the old school, you know. They've got an accordion. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you can tell that like this was like a real, you know, lesbian bar band from like the 60s or 50s even, right? Yeah, they have class. Yeah, they've got this vibe going on. And then uh, we get... Uh, uh, the yeah, like a, a punk rock performance uh, in the middle of the nightclub sequence where uh, everyone is kind of yeah, not really into it, but also everyone's kind of like a weird zombie in this nightclub anyway. It's like a very yeah. you know very strange vibe going on. But uh, I really loved you know that sequence and and thinking about as well the <laughs> thinking about like the nineties, right? I mean, to me, it's just inherently funny. Uh, that a guy like Sidney Fury born in the depression is using like faith no more uh, in his, in his movie, you know? So right. I don't know, just there. <laughs> I don't know if he's the well, one no, of using course, it necessarily. Yeah, I know. Yeah, true. <laughs> uh, Columbia or whoever distributed it, I'm sure had whatever record yeah. labels they owned, but uh, still, I mean, just like I was thinking about, yeah, the old and the new, you know, clashing together sure. uh, in multiple moments, you know? And I mean, that punk song in Simone also is particularly addressed at one point towards like a rich, group that comes into the nightclub because similar to the porno theater we also divert our attention occasionally to people who are just entering the nightclub and joining the collective essentially because it's this ecosystem of sorts where the camera is moving around and showcasing what everyone's doing in this nightclub and at one point three of them it's like two rich women and a man a man's wearing a tux and this woman has like this big scarf and she's she doesn't say anything she looks very uptight and at one point they they ask another group of patrons who are sitting on this lovely purple leather couch that they need to get up because this rich group is has you know supersedes them the that's sort of their their spot but when that woman sings that amazing punk rock song where she's got her tie and her red leather pants and she's stomping around she she does get in the face of those rich people um, and is, you know, screaming her lyrics. I love the lyrics of the song. She mentions, you know, if I'm butch, it's to defend my beef. If I'm butch, it's to defend my snatch. It really does feel like it could be a song by Fear, but if it was like a feminist lesbian band, you know, there, which is, I guess, is the exact opposite of what Fear is. But <laughs> yeah, her performance is so extreme, and there are definitely people there who are really into it. But yeah, at that moment, she is like screaming in the face of these rich people. So there is something there between the attitudes towards the the elect in both films. Yeah, I think both movies 
to me uh, also share this this spirit of just the sheer ridiculousness of humanity at large, right? All groups uh, that that we're all just kind of ridiculous creatures, you know, bumbling and stumbling around on this planet trying to 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 get laid or or get home even you know uh because i i don't feel in simone that there is this sense of you know some people are are cool and some people are uncool well there, i mean there, there kind of is but it's it's a little bit different right because even mm-hmm. on the on the class level you mentioned the character of the Marquis earlier. Like he is clearly a man from the upper class. And yet I think he's treated quite well by the director and, and, and even the, the, the two ticket takers, you know, like the one girl when he's going on and, and talking to her intelligently, thoughtfully, emotionally even about his experience of watching these films she's like enraptured by what he's saying and it's very clear that she knows him well he's a regular so many of the other patrons it's just like whatever they're saying kind of goes in one ear and out the other it's like yeah yeah yeah, get in there jerk it and get the fuck out of here just don't, uh, <laughs> leave us alone you know but there's there's a concern right for for people in this film that that isn't so black and white that isn't so clear cut um and and in that sequence in the the lesbian night sequence i i read vincent canby's review uh-oh. and yeah oh i was right but like the way he described the club to me it was just like so off because he was just sort of like yeah then they go to this more or less i'm paraphrasing what he said but it's like this this nearly empty kind of you know seedy shitty club and no one seems to be having a really good time and i guess again i i also looked at it very differently i kind of felt like this is a space that is safe for so many of these oddballs, you know? Mm -hmm. And there are those types of bars where, you know, people are able to go in there and just be themselves, you know, be, be openly queer, be ridiculous, be yourself. And there's this sort of like matronly figure overseeing the whole thing, presumably the owner of, of the club who is also presumably wealthy. And yet, you know, she's not looking down on anyone, you know, and and she's creating a space for all these different things to coexist. And it's just this totally just just rarefied, unique place where you can go in and let your freak flag fly. And so, yes, even in like that punk song, it's there's there's a lot of just, you know, uh, externalizing going on, obviously, as there usually (laughs) is with punk music. But it it didn't feel like mean spirited at all. And it, it certainly felt even that that the owner being perhaps a target as like a wealthy person was just kind of like great job. Like I, you know, I gave you a space to perform, you know, and like, this is exactly what we're all here for is this, this, this mixture of, of all these just absurd, ridiculous people trying to, to get theirs however they want it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I will say if, even though she was screaming the lyrics in the face of those rich people, I think she would have been quite happy if those rich people started singing along and just gave in to the spirit 
of the music. It did still feel ultimately like a welcoming gesture <laughs> as she was singing about her beef and her snatch <laughs> in the face of these uptight folks. To me, the epitome of the bar, to your point, Andy, is the uh, Racine quoting bartender who kind of, you know, appears and reappears out of the frame as Simone in her leather jacket is just sort of like you know, waiting for her girlfriend. And I think, you know, to to all of what's being said, I think like, yeah, Andy, I agree with you. The space is this place of freedom, right, for these people. And I think that's so important, especially because not everyone is okay, I guess, with uh, the levels of freedom, or maybe there are levels of freedom, right? Because I think we should address that Simone is not just waiting for her girlfriend. I mean, her girlfriend is like working there as an escort, kissing other patrons on the lips and like generally Mm -hmm. implied maybe doing other things, you know, in another room or off screen or whatever. Right. So uh, there is even this conversation that is struck up at the bar that Simone overhears where people are talking about, you know, would you prefer, you know, a jealous man or a man who, you know, cheats on you, right? Like, they even have that discussion. So I think, yeah, part of her, like, waiting and part of also what propels the movie forward, as you pointed out, Andy, is like, yeah, at a certain point, that window is closing, right? And part of that, too, is her just being, like, generally uncomfortable with maybe what's going on at a certain point or being jealous, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think from, from my own experiences, you know, where, where I've been in bars and I've been sitting there and I've been wondering and I've been looking at my phone, wondering if a, a text came through, you know, <laughs> like, or, or seeing simply somebody at the end of the bar and, and, and fantasizing and wondering like, man, if, if, if if I could hook up with this person, you know, like how great everything would be. And yet more often than not, your evening ends the way that Simone's does, where you're just sort of sitting there and then suddenly you hear, last call, you know, and it's like another night gone by and and the promise of some sort of transcendent escape from the the kind of like the the nocturnal rituals, which can sometimes feel almost dispassionate because there's this sense of I've been here before I'll be Mm -hmm. here again and I'll experience the same kind of being and nothingness of of a night gone by without anything that spectacular happening to me I mean I would also point out that I think Sidney J. Fury would like this bar because you know there is a particular floor show in there that I think is again uh, very well connected to the spirit of the kind of action extravaganza we experience with the taking of Beverly Hills when the dance of the Amazons <laughs> unfolds in yes. front of us and, and really it was at that moment seeing these two like extras from Xeno Warrior Princess uh, going through a choreographed sword fight and martial arts uh, exhibition that I was thinking to myself god damn I'd give anything to be in this fucking bar <laughs> like this I know. if this bar existed I would be here every night right next to Simone 
philosophizing with the bartender, watching these two chicks sword fight, tipping the accordion band, <laughs> like, and then you know having it all topped off with a with a face melting punk rock song. You yeah, know? I felt I mean, the exact same way. To me, that that bar was the place to be. That looked like my idea of just an absolute great time. I also imagined that those Amazon women as they were fighting with their like stilted sword play I, I couldn't help but watch that sequence and then envision one of the battles from the 13th warrior happening around them and them being at the center of it all doing their somersaults and their leather and just like whacking the swords against each other very very amusing but I also think when you're talking about the way it felt for Simone to be in that space and the idea of maybe even going through the routines of another night, another bar, being here again. When the film transitions from the porn theater to the bar, Simone's friend asks her, where are you going? And she, it's kind of sad. She mentions like, oh, well, I'll, I'll see what's down the street. You know, I'm going to head that way. I'll, depends on the moon, you know. But in reality, there is sort of this acknowledgement of, well, I'm going to be, I'm probably going to be heading back to this bar again. What do I typically do at this hour of the night? But it is nice that there are moments of connection that we get to see in this bar and that it's not just this feeling of hopelessness that Simone has. I really love, you know, the way the matron runs the space and how they've got like a bucket full of flowers that people can order for different members of the bar, which I thought was a very touching little moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I love any, any extended sequence in a film that just kind of like detaches from narrative and gives you all these bits of conversation and character and people and crazy set design and people hanging out with birds uh yeah it took me a while to realize there was a bird in there that was like a funny eye spy moment <laughs> yeah it's just like it just keeps fracturing and showing you you know all this new stuff and new people and new faces and again to, uh, to disagree with vincent camby people are dancing people are having a good time i mean there is yeah. a sort of stoic rivetian kind of like weird vibe going on right and everyone's wearing like bow ties and it's like weird you know but uh people are having a good time that's just you know yeah that's... i mean i guess maybe that red light that they're soaked in does make a few people with paler complexions kind of look like zombies so i could see a you know a big dumbo like vincent can be misreading that sequences yeah they're just looking cool vincent you wouldn't know but <laughs> There are a few people in the bar, one in particular who seems like she's having too good of a time, though, and you were talking about those levels of freedom that are on display in the bar. There is someone, I think her name is Roslyn. Who, she just wants to take her clothes off. She just wants to get all those clothes off, and that, that is sort of the drama Simone walks into, like, oh, Roslyn's really letting it loose tonight, keeps trying to get all her clothes off. So I think, I think you know, again, you know, I guess in, in, our, in our typical gauntlet fashion, you know, we've really been stretching uh at times to 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 sort of connect these films on a spiritual level but <laughs> there are major uh major departures and i think that you know what's sort of touching in simone is the, is the way that that uh the director really strives to find the beauty um in everyone uh even even if it's a character that's meant to be somewhat of uh, a joke uh, to us or a bit of an embarrassment yeah. perhaps to themselves. Uh, Simone 
you know, as a film, like it, it shows um, a, a, a lot of sensitivity towards, you know, how how pathetic people can be. And in that regard, to me, it's a very like empathetic film. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, on the flip side, the Taking of Beverly Hills, I think, really just goes out of its way to make everyone into a, uh, a sort of like ugly, boorish buffoon. Uh, whether intentional or not in in some respects, you know, and and while so much is being internalized in that film, I think we kind of alluded to this earlier, like the Taking of Beverly Hills at a certain point, it is just all uh, externalized. It is all all (laughs) action. It is all in your face. Uh, Once Boomer really like launches himself into the fray, and and just starts throwing objects at everyone, Molotov yeah. cocktails, rocks, and my favorite, ninja stars from an Hermes bag. Uh, you know, the the film, like, really, to me, like, that's, that's where, like, the joy in the film comes. And I, I think the film experience is really summed up well in a moment where, as, as, as Marsh, I think, also alluded to earlier, uh, you have the character of Boomer Hayes throwing ninja stars from a bullet-riddled Rolls Royce uh, into squad cars and into fake cops as Faith No More blasts on the soundtrack. Epic by Faith No More blasts on the soundtrack. Yeah, it's Callaway. They're alive and they're loose. You'll never see the dark quarterback! Never! And squad cars are exploding and and Beverly Hills is being completely destroyed piece by fucking piece. You know, for me, like, I, I think it's just those images and those moments that again, like my, the 12 the, the year old inside me was absolutely reveling in. I mean, I, I have to say, you know, uh, you know, when you consider even what Beverly Hills is as a place, it's the complete opposite of the spaces that Simone is, is trying to lay out for us. You know, that is a film about inclusivity, uh, even amongst different classes and different genders and different sexual orientations. You know, Beverly Hills, historically speaking, is a place of restriction, of exclusion. And I think it's it's important to point out, again, like Sidney J. Fury's pleasure in uh, deterritorializing this space in such a, a, uh, a wild way. You know, this is a, a, a municipality in Los Angeles that that long tried to hold on to racial uh, exclusion, particularly. Well, we've seen Michael Schultz's carbon copy. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to point out here that, you know, in the 1930s, when there were court cases uh, being laid out to to allow, you know, black citizens to move into Beverly Hills, notoriously, one Harold fucking Lloyd put himself out there as somebody who wanted to keep blacks out of Beverly Hills. I mean, I really do feel for Sidney J. Fury as a Canadian and as someone who's dealt with a lot of, like, Hollywood bullshit, like, this is a very, very, very pointed target. Fury's Fury. 
Yeah, that's really what I, I really just sort of revel in with this film and seeing pricks like Robert Davi, you know, portrayed as this sort of like asthmatic scumbag uh, who's going to get his. I mean, man, especially now, <laughs> like there is so much satisfaction in that. Well, it all goes back to what the Marquis said in the the lobby of the porno theater, right? And he said, uh, lately it seems like everyone's in it for themselves, you know? And that and that's his yeah. complaint about the, the lacking quality of porno movies, but he's clearly making it as uh, a gesture about, yeah, everything else, society, you know? It's the, it's the beginning of the 80s, you know, when Simone is being made. It's 1979, it's 1980. Uh, so yeah, thinking about that, and then again, the difference being right here, we have a, a a very presumably a very rich man making that kind of critique. No rich man in Beverly Hills is uh, reaching that level of consciousness or understanding of their surroundings. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a funny moment where Boomer talks about why he wants to do charity and give back, and he mentions like it's so important for people to see someone that they identify with. And they can understand in order to make their issues feel seen and make themselves feel seen. And I'm like, okay, like superstar football guy, you know, <laughs> like I get it to an extent, but there's also even limits to boomers reaching beyond, you know, his situation in life. I did love him throwing shit, though. I, I love whenever the film was just tracking in Boomer as... Uh, handling this entire situation with the skills he's acquired as a football player. Yes. Like, so obviously him throwing stuff was super funny. I even wish he threw like 10 other different types of objects throughout the film. But I really loved, there's a, a, a great gag where he's being pursued by that huge SWAT vehicle, which actually had a few images that reminded me of our namesake, uh, the Gauntlet, when in the Eastwood film, when they're driving that big armored bus, there's like a particular spot that's cut out where they can, st you know, kind of like peer through at the the big like cop barricade up ahead and that that image repeats uh, in in the SWAT vehicle as a similar little yeah, tank POV baby. But um that that scene is really cool because Boomer's way of diverting the tank and because this has been going on forever they've been being chased it's been totally chaotic at one point they're in a, a garbage can and the, the the tank like pushes them in that garbage can and they almost collide with another cop car in a nice moment too where he says wow even beverly hills even their garbage smells the same you know yeah the same as Simi Valley's. Yeah. But so this moment climaxes in a bit of like inspired football action where Boomer, who like develops a buddy relationship with a cop who has decided he no longer wants to be a part of the siege after seeing the mayor get shot. It's all gone too far. This cop is hanging out with Boomer and they're being chased. So Boomer sets him up on this fence and Boomer diverts the tension of the tank very much in a football fashion and he just starts sprinting towards the fence and on his cue the cop you know hops off and runs to the left and this was all just a ruse it, it diverted the tank's attention and he crashes into the fence and on the other end was pools by Peter <laughs> yeah the sign says pools by Peter yet yeah. another Beverly Hills joke <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I watched this movie three times in the last, like, two days. Oh I, I watched it twice and then watched it with the commentary. I mean, I, I, 
You know, I, I take it, you know, Ryan, I, I can pick up on it. You you didn't connect with it as 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 deeply as I did. Yeah, I'm never gonna watch it again. <laughs> but honestly, man, I, I I found so many pleasures in it. And you know, I think it's part of my experience just diving into uh, you know, vulgar tourism and really at at times just trying to to elevate that material for myself, you know, in a sort of death of the author way, even of, of, of taking what I want from it, you know, of, of, of saying, regardless, perhaps even of the intentions of the director, the producers, the studio who decided to recut it and add their own introduction or whatever, you know, what am I going to hold on to in this? And, and I, I saw this as a movie again of just so many just dumb pleasures with a class critique, a class consciousness uh, embedded within it. But, but Marsh, I, I want to ask you, as a former football player, you know, how do you rate Boomer Hayes and how do you rate his form, you know, <laughs> running downfield, throwing? I mean, what do you think? Well, look, I'm no quarterback. I was just a center. So really, you know, I was the guy who's uh, nuts the quarterback touched, you know. Um, so I can't really can't really rate him on throwing. But I, I, I was impressed. I would like him as a teammate, you know. I liked um, that thread of the movie, Ryan, that you brought up. Like, it, it's so cheesy. But that's, again, you know, a pleasure for me. Just like anytime they have to do anything, he's like drawing up a play or referencing like, like, okay, how do I escape from the National Guard? He's like, it's okay. It's like the third quarter. You know, he's got to like, he's got to have some kind of football analogy. But then I started really cracking up because... All of a sudden, the the sort of bad guys start using foot football vernacular as well. So it sort of like spills yeah. over to them because at one point, uh, outside of the the leaving villainous character, there's uh, another main bad guy named Benitez, and he's like this Latino dude with a mullet to, that's even bigger than Ken Wall's mullet, and he's like really after them. Touchdown, asshole! <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, why is he now referencing football? Because he knows they all know they're after a football player. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. it's super funny. Just like that sort of like cheesy screenwriting stuff uh, is all over it, and everything, of course, too. You know comes back because I, you know, I watched this with Kyle, and in the beginning, you know, Ken Wall is like Boomer. He's like. I hate being knocked down or whatever. He's like, I've never been knocked down or I hate being knocked down. Right. Right. When he said that, Kyle's like, he's going to get knocked down at the end of this movie, you know? Uh, and of course he gets knocked down at the end of this movie. So yeah, I mean, you can tell that they really are, uh, going after the die hard, like the script that refers back to itself. I mean, you've got the fake heist at the center of it, but I also couldn't help but think, this film came out the same year as another very famous movie about a football player caught in uh, action situations, right? And that's Point Break. Uh, so we have Johnny Utah, you know, obviously in that. So I was, I was comparing, you know, really more than thinking about whether, you know, Boomer was good. I was thinking, like, how does he rate with Johnny Utah, you know? And they both have leg problems and leg injuries. So I think... Uh, 
they're about even as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would say too about that character you pointed out, Marsh, uh, Benitez, played by Branscombe Richmond from Renegade fame. If anybody used to watch the TV show Renegade, uh, he's also spouting out a lot of like weird philosophical uh, phrasing, like phrases throughout the film. And I kind of felt like he was a very kindred spirit to the bartender in. Uh, in Simone, you know, like there's a point when, when he, he say, he's trying to even like say like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I killed them. And Lee Ving is like, what's the deal? Did you get him? And he says something like they've departed the earthly plane and now they're suffering in silence eternally. And Lee Ving is just like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Like, I mean, that's just like goofy shit that, that I, I really, uh, really, really appreciated throughout the film. And whereas the taking of Beverly Hills, you know, and Ends with many bangs. Uh, Simone ends uh, very quietly, right? But uh, it does have its own bit of action uh, because it is a car ride, you know? I was going to say, there is a bang at one point. Yeah, well, there is also, yes, the (laughs) the key, you're right. The key transitional moment, of course, is when uh, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on, but, but a man is shot uh, inside of the bar that Simone is at. Uh, and there's this kind of like, you know, uh, the madame is immediately sort of dealing with it as if it had happened before, you know? They're checking if mm-hmm. the coast is clear for what, however they're going to hide this, you know, murder that happens. But that's just a sort of dangling thread as it, uh, you know, propels Simone outside and she... Uh, ends up meeting uh, Mr. Baron. But I do also, you know, before we talk about this sequence, I also want to mention, because it's here when she's like outside, there's very moody synthesizer music. And I know we referenced uh, the Faith No More and, and that sort of stuff in The Taking of Beverly Hills, but it also has an original Jan Hammer score. Uh, and I want to say Taking of Beverly Hills for me is now like one of those like, I think the Jan Hammer score is, is better than the movie itself. Like, I want that score. I need to take oh, that yeah. score. I need to extract it from the film and, and listen to it on repeat or find out if there's, like, the vinyl or something. Because the music is consistently, yeah, it's, like, amazing, original or or not. You should cut, like, a music video <laughs> with footage from Simone with the Jan Hammer score from Taking of Beverly Hills. It could be a nice little trailer for this and episode. And then I'll flip them. We'll do one for both. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Whoa. Just recut recut the action scenes in the taking of Beverly Hills with the 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 twelve and a half degrees yeah. punk song, <laughs> feminist all the way, dude. As Boomer yes. is just throwing fucking ninja stars yes. at cops. <laughs> Or just the sounds of the porn that is like echoing outside of the different houses in the uh, in the movie Absolutely. theater. Absolutely, <laughs> a lot of sounds coming at us this week. So yeah, I mean, in Simone, we then get this like third sort of movement of the movie uh, where <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, guys. Uh, it's a car chase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sort of is. I mean, I really like what Andy, what you said earlier about people running out of time. And in a film where that's full of waiting, how waiting can still feel like you're running out of time. Yeah. And that is what I found so moving and profound about that ending where this man pulls up 
he's clearly just come from like the opera or something you know she she refers to him as mr baron and he offers her a ride and you know she stalks off and he follows her a bit more and says listen i can tell you're not the type to to have me give you a ride home so how about you hop in and you take the wheel and she does and she takes him up on that offer because it's a very Simone thing to do, and it's late at night, and that's one of the things that you might do late at night. At this point, it's probably around 3 or 4 a.m. when she gets in this car, if not even a little bit later. And it's a sequence that's full of all of these amazing little details. Like, there's this a die that's hanging from a thread on the rearview mirror that Mr. Baron keeps stroking every now and then, seemingly in a moment where he doesn't know how to keep the conversation going or he doesn't exactly know how to respond. But they talk about a variety of things. They talk about the soul. They talk about how good either of them are at having sex and how accomplished they are but i guess their ultimate mission as they feel time is running out and they only have each other here initially he asks her well why don't you come over to my my friend's place he's got a bar and he lists the location of it and that's like way too far for her she's like yeah it's way too late like i don't got it in me for that but we could get a drink and they're just driving around, but place after place, it's closed. They've been up all night, you know? They're running out of options as they're running out of time. And that really starts to sink in for both of them. They do listen to a song. The song talks about love and lost love and the soul, and he starts, he starts crying very quietly during that car ride. And initially she had mentioned that he had such a a resplendent mustache so it was really easy for him to to probably find ladies and she, when the song ends she brings up the mustache again and she's like got this teared teary-eyed face and he, he like pulls the mustache off of his face revealing that it's a fake um and i don't know it's just one of those things that's kind of indescribable it's so tragic that reveal he's, he's taking off his mask as small as it is um to show himself raw and real at that moment as dawn is approaching well, every everyone in this film is, I sh maybe I shouldn't say everyone, but, but so many of the people in this film are performing. Um, they're, they're playing a part. They're playing a role. And to me, this scene is, is yeah, it's really about these two people who have been, been performing all night, you know, mm -hmm. trying to, to get something, trying to to get laid even perhaps, you know, trying to, through their performance, win over their, their audience, their, their, their crowd. And it's like really in this moment when, when they're both just sort of like looking at each other and sizing each other up. And, and, and I think also wondering like, is it worth fucking this person? You know, like in this moment, yeah. you know, like, is this all I've got, you know, and, and should I, because they both like size each other up you know, th through the corner of their eyes at several points, they're, they're, they're looking each other over. And I really feel like measuring that, you know, measuring, is it worth it? Like, will this make me feel better? Like, is this sort of a victory? And as they both kind of come to the realization that it won't make either of them feel better, uh, they're, they're left with, with nothing else, but to sort of just kind of like, take off their makeup, you know, take off their, their costumes, 
literally and and figuratively. And I think that's part of it, you know, is they're they're both revealing to each other in this strange kind of nocturnal encounter that you can only have at 4.30 in the morning in a city that they're really scared, you know? They're scared of the dawn. They're scared of of mourning. They're, they're, they're scared of, of everything. They're scared of themselves. And yeah, I mean, I was like incredibly moved by it, you know, because of its sensitivity, because of its care, because of these, these kind of unique singular encounters that you can, you can find out there in mm-hmm. the world if you're willing to stay up late enough, you know? And it's like, that feeling how it can be much easier to reveal honest things about yourself to complete strangers. And I think that one of the other threads of their conversation is he mentions how happy she looks and she says, Oh, if only you knew how unhappy I was, dear man. And you talking about that performance and both of them putting on a performance of happiness, even of them feeling like their night has been successful up to a point, but that all sort of crumbles on that car ride as the dawn approaches and they have to think about the next day. They have to think about facing the reality of their lives. The illusion of the endless night being up all night, extending this performance of happiness to its absolute limits is disappearing in front of their eyes as the light is starting to return. And I I think that's the reason, definitely one of the reasons he starts crying. But even just thinking about her as someone who has dealt with so much unhappiness all night, I mean, think about in the first sequence when she has to go clean up uh, theater two because they mention that it's really, really stinky. And she goes around with the aerosol and, you know, clears it out. And when she comes back, she's like, I could have lit those fucking guys on fire. They had no idea I was in there. They were completely zoned in. And I guess her whole night kind of culminating in this moment after kind of a debilitating day of work, losing touch with her girlfriend at the bar and this weight of her own unhappiness is sort of taking her over as the dawn is approaching. Well, it's even more pointed, you know, at the end, because in the first sequence at the theater, she's kind of like going at Martine, her co-worker, about her boyfriend and about like how yeah. she, you know, runs her life. And she's very critical of her co-worker and ripping on her boyfriend and being like, you should just break up with him, you know, then you'll be happy, you know. And then we see, right, it all sort of stripped away. We have this initial impression of Simone as like this badass leather clad porno usher who doesn't take shit from anybody, but we then go into her real life and we see what her life is like outside of work when she's not performing usher, performing sarcastic porno usher, you know, Uh, and shit gets real. And by the end of the night, yeah, it's just like getting even more real because uh, there's a, a moment in the car ride I especially loved where all of the sudden they sound like a, a bickering old couple, you know, cause they're like talking about where yeah. to go. And it's like, yeah, you know, you really get this like uh, evolution of their dynamic till, you know, by the end, he reveals like that he's not this posh guy that she thought he was because she thinks he's like this rich guy. He's got a scarf on. He's mm-hmm. got this mustache. He's like in a tux. He's got this nice car. But he's like, yeah, I work at the casino. I'm a, I'm a creepy, you know, creepy. Like, 
that that's that's it you know i'm just like this sad guy he's got the dice in the window uh and similarly she lies about what she does to him so she won't even you know go all the way right and ultimately too you know uh speaking of a sort of like gender reversal andy like you were talking about in the hot tub moment of taking of beverly hills here we get yeah the woman you know just like in charge is just like, no, nope, yeah, yeah, drop me off. This is my house. You know, at the end of the day, she was also just like, give me a fucking ride home, you know, and got it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that final, that final sequence to me, like really made me like reflect upon the entire film as a sort of like, you know, cause it feels very, um, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but the film feels very theatrical in the sense that it feels mm-hmm. like a, a three-act play, as you've described. These three sequences in three very distinct locations with, uh, with a particular uh, set of characters in each of those acts. And so, like, I was thinking of, I kept thinking of, like, Waiting for Godot. Like, this is a sort of, like you know, waiting for Godot in like a Piga, like porno district or something of, <laughs> of Paris. And I just kept thinking of like my favorite, you know, uh, moment in, in waiting for Godot that's often repeated is this idea of them like looking up at the moon and looking at this stupid fucking tree and just sitting there and like waiting, waiting for some sort of transcendence, you know, waiting for some sort of escape from waiting uh and and how often they'll just simply say maybe we should hang ourselves you know (laughs) like maybe that'll be maybe that'll be our escape you know but they don't they just keep waiting and that final sequence particularly like really hammered those points home you know here you have these two people who are clearly looking for some escape from this this constant waiting waiting for what in each case who knows, you know, but at the end of it all, like, that's really it. You know, the sun is coming up and they didn't hang themselves, you know, and all they're going to do is do it all over again. You know, this was not a unique night for Simone or for the Baron. This was a typical night, you know, unlike Boomer's night, which was atypical. <laughs> and, atypical and again, yeah. <laughs> I want to come full circle because I was thinking this earlier. At, you know, it, at the end of Simone, <laughs> no sex is had. And at the end of Boomer, uh, he has, let's remember, played in a football game in which he won and then single-handedly stopped a, a coup-slash-siege-slash-heist of Beverly Hills, and at the end of the film, he is ready to have sex and explicitly says so. And that is, again, the cortisone yeah. <laughs> working wonders for him there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It really is a wonder drug, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and was that... So, you know, Robert Davi meets a really odd end at the end of this film. Oh, I, yeah. I missed it, so was that... The, was that like his used up cortisone syringe that he was then injecting? No, a, or no, no it no, was no. the, it's like the asthma shit. No, 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 no. That's a that is a uh, a cork remover from wine bottles that uses a CO two cartridge. The idea is it's like a spike, and you stab it through the cork and you plunge it down, and it injects you know CO two air whatever. To, to sort of create pressure in the bottle that like pushes the cork out. Oh my so God. 
he stabs him with that, and then he jammed the plunger. So he clearly just like he with stabbed air, him yeah. with it, and then just shot CO two into uh, him, his lung or his heart. Oh, or horrible way to go. Oh, it is. I mean, like. There are a lot of gruesome deaths in Taking of Beverly Hills. As goofy as it is, I mean, people are getting, like, lit on fire. People are getting blown up. I mean, Robert Doff, he gets, gets basically, like, aerated to death by this, this cork uh, remover. But also, I, uh, another point that I we didn't really touch on that I, I loved, it's just such a goofy fucking detail of how over the top and dumb this movie is, is, you know, the, the character at a certain point, Robert Davi, you know, we should mention there was there was tension throughout the film because Robert Davi also wants the woman that Boomer is is going after. So we do have this kind of sort of subplot there of a very specific kind of duel over this woman. And when Robert Davi like has her, you know, he's taken her prisoner uh, and, and he's talking to her about, well, now I'm going to have to kill you. You know, I'm thinking about, I can't just let you go. You know, the whole plan. And she asks him like, well, have you thought about it? Have you thought about how you do it? And he's like, oh yeah. And he smashes this like framed antique crossbow that he has on the wall and pulls out like a 300 year old crossbow where he's like, this is how I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's just such a ridiculous object to procure to end someone's life. But yeah, that, that, that whole sequence is, is, is fucking goofy. It's so especially stupid. since so much of the movie is like moments such as when he breaks the glass to steal that purse, you know, there's always like these fancy objects found around Beverly Hills and here Davi pulls out like an archaic crossbow. <laughs> it feels like so odd, like a real villainous moment inside of Beverly Hills. Well, to say nothing of the cattle prod and also uh, the flamethrower that are used in the film. So I, yeah. I can see, you know, Andy weapons guy loves it. You know, there's a wide variety on display. <laughs> <Andy> Land. <here>. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous, you know, and then it all comes down to the Virgin Robert Davi versus the Chad Ken wall. Like, come on, man, you gotta love that shit. Dude, you know? <laughs> I did really love that flamethrower. There were a couple cool moments where the spray of that flamethrower felt like it was crossing the entire two, three, five image when they're chasing him. And they just like no thought for how much of the, f whatever, like the fuel or whatever they were using for that flamethrower. That thing was just, they're just unloading. It was a pure cinematic bliss. There was yeah. No reality yeah. to like, okay, we can't like just totally expunge everything we have in this. I wrote down, he's wasting all the gas. You yeah, know? Dude. <laughs> yeah, he was just like unloading. He wasn't even close to him. He just wanted that image to be like tracking down after Boomer. He's like, I'm coming with my giant spray of flame after you. I mean, honestly, I have to say per capita, this has got to be the greatest amount of explosions in like a 90 minute film uh, I've seen. I mean, it is, it is very like high. 70 minutes out of 90 minutes are explosions and things being lit on fire. It is a pyrotechnics uh, wet dream, really what's going on in this, <laughs> in this film. And, and those are again, for me, the, the very simple pleasures of, of a mind that's looking for, uh, just this kind of pleasure, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was trying to come up with like a wet dream joke for the porn theater, but I got nothing. <laughs> That's the joke. Uh, That's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Marsh, 
Well, these were our uh, attempts at, uh, you know, keeping you up all night. Uh, <laughs> when you think about it, what comes to mind, you know? There's only one to me, uh, and that is Walter Hill's 1979 film, The Warriors, one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, one that starts... Uh, deep in the night at the gang uh, meeting up in the Bronx and ends in the morning being terrorized by David Patrick Kelly on the beaches of Coney Island. Uh, one of the great up-all-night movies as the Warriors try to escape to their home turf and everyone is gunning for them after they've been uh, framed for the murder of uh, Cyrus. R.I.P. Can you dig it? You know? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of the great American action movies. Nothing else needs to be said. Yeah, it's, it's simply the best. And it also has a very great video game uh, that you can play alongside the, the feature at times uh, up exactly when you get to the actual movie portion of the game. I know we've all done it. Yeah, fun game. You know, there was, uh, I discovered in my research, I don't oh. know if you guys came across it as well, apparently uh, a, a PC game tie-in with The Taking of Beverly Hills from 1991. Dude, we got to get our hands so, on it. It sounds really good. Yeah. We do. Yeah, we need to seek that and, you know, do a maybe do a Twitch stream where we all play uh, Taking of Beverly Hills on <laughs> yeah, PC. Hell yeah. Yeah, I forgot to check if it was, like, emulated anywhere online. Um, I'm sure it is somewhere. Oh, it's got I love it. Well, uh, thanks, guys. It was uh, it was fun staying up all night with you. Uh, well, it was obviously my topic this week. Next week, it's Andy's topic. What do you have for us this time? Well, you know, there's a there's a movie that's out right now that uh, a lot of people have been uh, talking about. You know, big movies are back. Tom Cruise is back as Pete Mitchell, Maverick, in the new Top Gun film. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it occurred to me how, how much I, I uh, enjoy films about aviation, about flying, you know. And so in a similar way before, you know, when, when Cry Macho was out and we took a, a deep dive into, into films, uh, exploring similar territory. I think it's uh, it's maybe worthwhile for us to do that as well, as there's so much buzz right now, uh, buzz in the tower, you know, with Maverick in the skies. So bring me movies about flyboys or girls, but movies about flight, about soaring up in the wild blue yonder. You got it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. I met this woman tonight. And I realized I've never had an adult relationship my whole life. You married? My wife wants me. Dentist. Probably better at oral sex or something. You know, we're both selfish men. I don't go to jail for it. Yeah, you're right. I'm 
en tout cas, 